Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome back to Side Note. Today, we are talking to one of our favorite science communicators, David Epstein, author of The Sports Gene and his most recent book, Range. We talk about him debating Malcolm Gladwell, some of the most fascinating studies from his new book, but mostly we just bond and talk and learn from each other about our jobs as science communicators. We are a sub science here to make things make sense. Hello. Welcome back David, to Side Note. Are you there? <laughs> Can you I'm hear here. Us? Thanks so wow. much. I'm so glad to be here. Absolutely. So just so everyone knows, we have David Epstein with us, who is a New York Times bestselling author of two books that are amazing that we've loved both. You are a journalist. You previously, he was previously a science and investigative reporter at ProPublica and a senior writer at Sports Illustrated. David, thank you so much for coming on to our show. Oh, it's my pleasure. As you know, I'm a longtime fan, so it's it's really a treat for me. Yeah, I think we actually touched base now. It must have been like five or five years ago. It was a long ago, time ago. It yeah. was during the Sochi Olympics, I think, because we had used your a book, The Sports Gene, as a reference for a handful of our videos when we were like making videos about the Olympics. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right. I, I forgot about that because I was watching, uh, you know, I had watched some of your videos before that. I forgot that that was... Kind of, yeah, I think you reached actually, out and you were like, okay. oh yeah, that was based on like my book. Well, you, I, think <laughs> your book right. I think your oh. book hadn't been released and we had gotten an advanced copy of your book and it was so helpful for us making those videos. Then you reached out and you were like, these are, how do you know all this stuff? And we were like, <laughs> so your publisher sent us your book. And then we were like, we love it. And then we like promoted your book and then we've been friends ever oh, since. That's, that's funny. I, for, I, I had forgotten about that. I mean, yeah. I, obviously I know that we, we did a video together, but I was watching your videos before that and I, I just... I mean, you're, you're right, but I just didn't remember that. Right. Yeah. But you're not here with us, sadly. For, I know how the magic of technology is like you're in the room. <laughs> I know. Even for us, there's been technical moments for all of us. Figure, we're in a different studio that we've never been in. We're phoning you in. So we're all here together. If there's technical moments, we have an amazing engineer to help us get Some through Some might this. say we've made it. <laughs> I know. I know. The engineer already turned taught me how to turn off the metronome um, garage <laughs> garage, yeah. claps all around claps Impression. all around well it's a good start to the podcast so yeah let's get into what did we learn this week oh what did we learn this week i think the, the most interesting thing i learned this week and this is going to sound kind of random but um i sort of did a journalistic detour in my career and spent about a year reporting about drug cartels oh wow um and 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 particularly actually some of the bad deals that our government makes in pursuit of drug cartels and so i ended up reading you know, sort of compiling um, a, a mini library of cartel books and was reading one this week that's by uh, Pablo Escobar's brother and accountant called The Accountant's Story. And in it, I was really surprised to learn that at the peak of uh, the cartel's success, 
they had to spend $2,500 a month on rubber bands just what? to bind all of the incoming money, which I thought was Whoa. a pretty amazing fact. <laughs> and I was wild. thinking like, you know, as I don't know if you guys like Fermi estimation, you know, like that Fermi was famous for like asking people to just make really broad estimates by breaking a problem down into sort of a million components and mm-hmm. trying to get the right order of magnitude. I just think that would be a really high level Fermi estimate question to just like ask people, you know, with no other information. How much do you think the Medellin cartel had to spend on rubber bands? <laughs> wow, that is so crazy to think about. We're rubber making lots ba- of money. That means, yeah, and like, to think about that's that, that's just one band that has wrapped a lot of money. I know. I yeah. went to Medellin. It's apparently you're supposed to say Medellin. Apparently, I've been been to Medellin once. I said Medellin. <laughs> I don't even. I don't even want to try. I know. Yeah. I know. I'm actually so embarrassed. I just said that. But we went on this. Um, everyone was like, "You have to go on this Pablo Escobar like tour thing," which I kind of was like unsure about doing. And you go to his home where his brother takes you on this tour. And it's like, it's it's very popular. But the whole time I was like very, I didn't know so much about it. But like, obviously, like the violence and like the amount of money and how much of a hold they had on that city was like really incredible to learn. But the whole time I was like, I don't really like that. I'm like here, like, like meeting these people. They're selling like Pablo Escobar merch. And I'm like, this is a weird thing for me to be doing. But that's like, I, they did not say that fact on that tour, but I feel like they should. And I weirdly have another Pablo Escobar fact I saw today. Your one of the meetings this week is about Pablo Escobar? No, but I was oh. almost made it about it. And then I'm just pulled this up to remind myself. It said his hippos have become an invasive species in Colombia. Wow. So he brought like, four oh, hippos and now there's 80 and it says their waste is impacting the area's water system. Isn't that crazy? Oh my gosh, because they brought these exotic animals because mm-hmm. that's what he did do. I remember he brought like in on like in the show. I don't know if it's true or not, but in Narcos, well, they yeah. bring like lions and hippos. hippos and oh my God. So he's there you go. basically single-handedly propping up like the the coke hippo and rubber band yeah, yeah exactly wow. very specific the, all the staples yeah he was niche but he got it oh my gosh mine's such a detour do you want to do another one mitch or do no, you, you want to do that okay i will no i now i'm like i have so many you go first and then i have like i have one main one that i have okay so mine's about uh virtual reality which is like in toronto i don't know if this is happening in other places but they're popping up everywhere these sort of like arcade like places where you pay like 60 bucks for an hour and you play like vr games and so when i think of virtual virtual reality i think of games but there's at stanford what they're doing is essentially trying to create these like they're called virtual human interaction labs where they're almost trying to make people more empathetic and in quotes like better people through vr and so one example is that ultra soft toilet paper i didn't know this but like Charmin, you know all those fancy mm-hmm. toilet papers which we don't use at home we are cheap um <laughs> But it's it's good because the actual like fiber that makes them soft, it means that you have to cut a tree down that is live, that is standing. It's like oh, much worse for like deforestation. So what they do is they tell you that fact, then they put you into a virtual a virtual uh, reality simulation where you just cut down trees. Like what? you you cut down like in this for this example, they say sequoia trees, these beautiful trees. And then after they did tests and found that the people who actually physically in virtual reality cut down trees were 20% less likely to shop for soft toilet paper versus people who just watch deforestation videos. Interesting. Yeah, and so there's like other things that you can do but like I just thought that was like an interesting way that they're obviously trying to like figure out how to make VR like actually like scientific or like do something good. <laughs> no, it's like cool. Making you yeah. cut down trees. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I guess having having a direct experience with something, yeah, you would naturally feel much more connected to being aware that you have to destroy something. Yeah, and it's not fun. Like, they definitely can't charge $60 for you to do that. <laughs> <laughs>
That's super interesting, though. Think of like the empathy applications, right? Like I've gotten mm. in, involved with this nonprofit called Classroom Champions that like connects Olympians and Paralympians to underprivileged classrooms, like for digital mentoring. And some of the one of the Paralympians, um, you know, who was a gold medalist, is a blind long jumper. And at one point, when Google Glass was still sort of a thing, yeah. briefly, um, <laughs> they had a <laughs> grant where and he would wear them and like go through his whole routine. Sorry, say again. He'd, he'd, he'd wear them, this blind long jumper. He'd, he'd wear them and go through his whole routine and the class would be like watching him. You know, how does he get dressed? How does he get to training and all this stuff? Because wow. he's, he's blind. And, you know, the idea was to sort of see the world uh, through his eyes. So it just brought that to mind. And, you know, you can obviously yeah. think of a lot of potential applications in terms of trying to sort of convey a greater feeling of empathy than maybe someone would get from a news article or a Yeah, totally. Which is so important right now. Another thing they actually do is they put um, the... VR headsets on like watertight to your head and they can put you in an actual swimming pool at Stanford where they put flotation Whoa. devices around you so you don't hit the walls and then you literally can go snorkeling and see the Great Barrier Reef or, or snorkel with <laughs> oh whales. Gosh, that's really cool. But for that exact reason, like a lot of people aren't going to have access to go to the Great Barrier Reef or even with climate change, like mm -hmm. decreasing, like this is kind of like very like futuristic, but so we don't fly in planes anymore, just put pop these on and then you can just go <laughs> snorkeling in Bermuda <laughs> down the street. Like those are like smart options to think as we move forward. And the empathy thing is like obviously super important. Mm -hmm. Th that, that is so cool. Though. I really want to do that. I, I once yeah. got to visit the, there's, I think it's the biggest swimming pool in North America is the one that has a complete replica of the International Space Station. Um, in, wow. in Houston that the astronauts train for their, you know, extravehicular activities by scuba diving and doing stuff around this scale model. Apparently, like when they have to drain and fill part of it, they get complaints from the residents nearby because it takes so much water that nobody can get like pressure in their shower. Oh, oh like my God. <laughs> but like, imagine if you had like the VR and, you know, maybe you'd feel like you were sort of in space with even few as a true have access to if you if that you've got that visual but you're in you know suspended in the water okay should we wire in nasa and tell them <laughs> already <laughs> that's the, so where is that I that's mean, like the place that you see in movies kind of when astronauts are like scuba diving to prepare for space is that like what i'm picturing is where you were yeah i think it's called the if i recall it's called the remember correctly the neutral buoyancy lab yeah uh, i think okay. you know where they they like inflate the spacesuit just such that it you know they try to simulate basically what outer space would be like in in the pool Wow. It's really cool. As you walk around this pool, you can't tell how deep it is, but you can see that there's a replica of the space station sunk into it. So wow. I want to go there. <laughs> Technology. America is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So my what did you learn this week is about procrastination, something I'm sure everyone can relate to. Uh, this study Don't know what you're was, talking about. Yeah. <laughs> sure, sure. You, know, you do have two New York Times bestselling yeah, books. So you actually know might, yeah, you yeah. actually might not know. Yeah, but there were six years between them. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so basically, it was looking at uh, procrastination being a result of anxiety often. And so this new study found that something called inquiry-based stress reduction is a tool that can actually help minimize procrastination. So basically, they looked at university students who are preparing for tests that were obviously stressed because like universities are very stressful. When I was time. the most stressed, yeah. And um, they had one group do seminars on this IBSR or that this like 
style of learning that would make you address your procrastination your, or actually make you address your stress. So I won't go through all the questions, but it kind of goes through this process where at first you question the vid- validity of your stress by saying things like, is this thought true? So you stop yourself and address what's stressing you out. Then you become aware of the sensations in your body or how you're feeling. So very therapy. Yeah, how are you reacting? What physical sensations are you feeling? And then it moves to a final stage where you perceive reality without the stress. So what would you be like with out these thoughts and so they found that by like writing these things down and thinking them out people were much less likely to procrastinate and ultimately actually have less stress huh so i was like that's a cool thing to just like actually realize okay if i acknowledge my stress there's there's like a motivational speaker called mel robbins she has a lot of viral videos on the internet and she often has them on procrastination and one of her big taglines is procrastination is a form of stress management it's not because you're lazy it's actually because you're dealing with stress and I'm like, okay, that's an interesting way to take that message and actually turn it into an actionable sort of plan of how to deal with that. Wow. Because I'd never thought about how procrastination had anything to do with stress. Mm-hmm. No. I, I have to say, this is making me feel very trite. So we went to, we had, you know, virtual empathy, procrastination is anxiety. And I went with like Pablo Escobar. <laughs> no, no. No, no, I okay. love that one. To be honest. Those my, are more normal than what we used. Yeah, my, yeah. I, my other one I wrote down is really short. It was literally just that this week I learned. I took a spin class on a cycle thing for the first time ever. <laughs> and I realized you can't just, after they make you spin really fast, you can't just like slow your legs down. So as they'd be like, okay, slow down. Like my leg went flying because I just thought I could stop biking so I like <laughs> kicked my leg and the instructor was like are you okay and I was like I'm fine I'm fine so yeah be careful okay, you're like, I usually understand circular physics but in this moment I doubt uh, okay that one makes me feel a little bit better yeah, that yeah, was my first what did you learn this week time to get to know ya so now we are just going to talk all about you, David. <laughs> we have a handful of questions, but we're mostly just interested in you and your life and the things you've learned and the things you've and done. And being a writer. Oh, my god! Yeah. So just for people who don't know, the two books that you read or have written, and correct me if I'm wrong, if there's any others you've ever written, one was called The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance, and Range, which was your more recent book, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. That is... That is my entire book corpus. That's nice. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay, good one, Mitch. You nailed yes. it. Yes, okay, okay. My <laughs> pre-research has paid off. Um, ultimately, I'm just so curious what prompted... Let's go back to your first book, The Sports Gene. Uh-huh. I know you were a writer before that, um, but what kind of brought you into this world of science communication and wanting to do a big project like The Sports Gene? Yeah, so just the disclaimer off the bat here, there's a not happy part to this story at the beginning, which is that um, I was a competitive runner and uh, one of my good friends and training partners who was like one of the top top ranked guys in the country in his age group in the half mile, 800 meters, um, actually dropped dead at the end of a race. Oh, uh, my God. You know, a, a few steps after he was like the, the first in a family of Jamaican immigrants who was going to go to college and all these sorts of things. And, you know, it's a very sad story. What obviously. kind of what kind of race? Like what distance running is this? A uh, half mile. It was a half mile race at wow. an indoor, oh indoor track. And and so, you know, my hometown papers sort of said, uh, well, heart attack. And it kind of um, at this I was a little older than him. So I was at, at college and I was. I majored in geology and minor in astronomy. And, you know, so I read the papers, they say heart attack. And I kind of think, you know, now I'm starting to think a little more like a scientist. Like, well, I don't even know what that really means Yeah, you know, for someone of that age. Like, what 
is heart attack. And and I guess I was kind of shy. I became like a lot less shy through through journalism. But at the time, even though I knew his parents, I sort of didn't work up the courage to go ask about it. But eventually I did, you know, maybe a year later. And, yeah, that's and a challenging thing to do in any sense to go speak to parents. But okay, wow. Yeah. And, and so I did. And they sort of uh, didn't have any more information. Their, their view was kind of, you know, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh. Um, and I had a lot of questions and eventually they signed a waiver allowing me to gather up, uh, his medical records. And so I did that from a bunch of different places and it turned out he had basically a textbook case of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or HCM, which is by far the most prevalent cause of when you hear, uh, like a young athlete, uh, dropping dead or a young person dropping dead while exercising. Um, and I got interested in that and started, uh, you know, sort of like, he was diagnosed with asthma. That's like a common misdiagnosis for it. And and if anyone had ever taken a good family history of his family, it probably would have been obvious and he could have been huh. saved. And so I started to realize that just with some awareness, no high tech, high cost stuff, we could save some people. Um, and I just was thinking about that a lot. And as I progressed in, in science and eventually into science grad school, uh, I decided that I really wanted to merge my interests in sports and science and write about sudden cardiac death in athletes um, for an audience that was not like me, you know, purchasing science magazines with their disposable income. And so for a while, I kept going down the science track. I even went, um, I was living in a tent in the Arctic doing some research on the carbon cycle uh, when I decided for sure I was going to become a writer. And, and that sort of led me on this winding path that ended with me uh, becoming the science writer at Sports Illustrated. But when I, when I first got in there, I actually came in as a temp fact checker and kind of pitched this stuff on huh. uh, sudden cardiac death. Look, I'm and, really interested in this stuff. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, the guy who brought me in as a temp, he had gone to med school and then became a writer. So he was sort of interested in me. Wow. Um, but, you know, I was the temp <laughs> fact checker. Right. And they sort of said, no, no, no. But, but because of my science background and also some crime reporting experience I had gained inadvertently just trying to get into the industry, um, I had this odd background, so they kept extending the temp gig. And then the Olympic trials for the U.S. marathon team for the 2008 Beijing Olympics um, came to Central Park, and the guy ranked like fifth in the country, dropped dead like 15 blocks from our office. In the wow. Middle of and they, you know, say, don't you know a lot about this? Right. right. So it's suddenly, right. So I was a Like temp a very useful a, thing to understand. A, yeah. And it had a cover story in Sports Illustrated as a temp, and it looked like we had done all this research in, in one week. Wow. And so I sort of became the science writer there. And that, that's... Also, what kicked off my interest in genetics, That's uh, because it's it's this illness caused by a single gene mutation, but the, the issue is way more complicated. Because in the late '90s, when the first gene mutation that causes it, so it's one of those rare conditions that actually is caused by a single gene mutation. Wow! Um, and in the '90s, when the first mutation was discovered, you know, the feeling was, "Oh, great, we can screen everybody now." And then a few more were discovered. And last time I checked, you know, a few years ago, there were more than 1,400 um, individual genes, any one of which could cause the disease. And two-thirds of those had only been found in a single family, so-called private mutations. Wow. So you could have thousands of people with the exact same condition, very few of them caused by the same actual gene mutation. So I think it's sort of a microcosm of how complex. Wow. Uh, Like my motto for genetics is like genetics turned out to be more complicated than we thought. Yeah, I was going to say like Uh, anything that with genetics eventually when you start learning, you're like, wow, this is so complicated. Mm -hmm. It can never be as like specific as people want it to be. Yeah. And so, I mean, that really got me interested in in genetics and reading the genetic literature and that sort of naturally ended up leading uh, to the first book. Um, 
Yeah, and in some ways, the first book ended up leading to the second book. But sorry, that was the really long version. That was like, no, that's so really such a noble yeah. beginning. Wow, that's like an incredible yeah, story. Yeah, it is. And so did you, in your mind, ever have interest before all that to write a book? Had you, as a younger person, thought, you know, I really love or I want to create something like a book that I can share on a mass scale? Or was it all these things added up and you went, okay, maybe I'm going to do this now? I-, I knew I liked writing. Like when I was a little kid, I would sort of write stories, like just fictional stories. Um, but then there, and, and I, and I liked reading when I was a kid, but then I think there was like a long lapse where, where then I started just reading like only about sports. And then I started just kind of doing sports and not reading so much. Um, (laughs) and so I think I, so when I started getting back to it, I kind of like remembered that I had really liked writing and I started to realize in college, um, when I had elective courses take, I would take like major texts of uh, East Asia and things like that, that involved a lot of writing. And even in science, I started to realize that one of my advantages was, um, writing skill because people may not think of that often, but for sure in a lab like that is a really a skill that can, that can set you apart. You know, a lot of different skills that can set you apart, Mm -hmm. but that's definitely one. Um, and I did start to realize I really liked sort of playing with, with writing. I didn't have thoughts, um, of doing a book until I started getting really interested in the sudden cardiac death stuff. First, just for my to satisfy my own curiosity like just the fact that just oh heart attack just didn't it just didn't it wasn't an end point for me <laughs> basically <laughs> yeah, um, yeah and and once i started realizing that just some awareness and things as simple as decent family histories and uh then i really started thinking yes i i want to write a book and and if, initially i conceived it as being much more of a personal story of me and this guy and this disease and um, i actually could not get that book uh, sold partly at the time because I just didn't have any sort of social like, capital in the right. industry, I mm-hmm. guess. Um, but yeah, so then I started to think about it because there were all these other issues tied up in it too. Like for example, um, we won't, we were not going to save everyone from from this condition, but uh, sometimes you'll pick up a certain type of heart murmur in if someone has a physical, you know, a pre-participation physical before sports in high school. Like before they even start playing sports, like you would just know from what, like a general checkup? Yeah, so so in in most places before you can play varsity sports in high school, you have to get this so-called pre-participation physical, and it's like oh, not- I don't know why I don't know that usually. I consider myself a varsity sports person. <laughs> yeah, I, forgot, yeah. I forgot, I forgot, I forgot about that medical thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I so remember it's pretty, doing that. Pretty much like mandated, and um, in some places for especially for people who don't have as good personal access to healthcare, they'll just bring someone to the high school and they'll do like screen hundreds of people in a day. You know, wow. take their blood pressure, listen to their heart, whatever, hmm. and again you wouldn't catch most cases but occasionally you'll catch someone who has cardiovascular training will catch a strange heart murmur and maybe refer someone to uh, follow up and you'll find out they have this condition that's different but in a lot of states things like people with you know lobbying groups for um, professionals who don't have any cardiovascular training like uh, chiropractors for example will often win the right to do those screenings and so then there's really no chance that they'll catch any of it so so both from the standpoint of wait what does that mean win the right to do those screenings like people will they'll lobby for it and then this then a state will will insta- institute them and say like they have the right to do these these screenings even though so they maybe don't have the right tools to necessarily find these things properly is that what you mean that's right. Yeah, exactly. Huh. And so if you don't, you know, it's basically just a cardiovascular screening. So the idea that I think last time I checked, maybe it was like 13 or 15 states had granted um, professionals with no cardiovascular training whatsoever the what? right to do these because they're kind of lucrative, right? Because you can do a couple hundred I was gonna people say, why and get a fee from the school district. Why are they doing it? You get money? 
Like yeah, you yeah, pay, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, it's a business would thing. Pay it's their you. lobbying group that that gets the. You know, wow, the, it's nothing to add to the list of issues from lobbying <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. at state and federal levels. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So there were all these issues, you know, policy, health, science, all these sports, all these things I was interested in, and then I started thinking, wow. gosh, I really would like to write long about this. Was it like the genetics of sports? something i feel like that's something that people really talk about a lot now i mean it's so funny me and mitch like interviewing him like we are so bad at like knowing much about sports like <laughs> the raptors just won in toronto so i know who Kawhi leonard is now i'm sure he has brilliant genes but um it feels like from like the people i've spoken to like it's become a more popular thing that people talk in the world of sports is that true and when you were writing your book was it sort of like at the time something that was like new whereas now it's more popular to speak about I mean, I think there were always these sort of questions, you know, that were not uh, of of genetics and sports that were not discussed really in a scientific way, like questions about race and sports and gender mm-hmm. and sports and things like that, that were sort of always, I mean, you know, right, like um, one of the one of the things I found interesting when I was doing research for the sports gene is this idea that um, athleticism is like on a on a biological teeter totter with intellect, for example, you know, that, hmm. um, that, that didn't really become an idea until African-American athletes started becoming dominant. So when Hitler wow. uh, threw the Berlin Olympics, the idea was, Oh, we're going to show, you know, that this, um, this perfect form of man, you know, this, this white race, that's, um, sound of body and sound of mind. And then Jesse Owens went in there and really rained on that parade. And so they had to kind of change the marketing technique and it was more like, well, oh yeah, that's because he's closer to animals. So obviously, wow. you know, that's so, so fascinating. Yeah. I mean, that's something we try and talk about all the time with science is the fact that for like historically, the people who are doing science, even now, the people who are in charge of deciding what to study are predominantly like white men. And it, th- there's so much bias in science and also so much social constructs that come into it to create this like narrative that me and Mitch are trying so hard to like fight against with our YouTube channel. And I remember reading your book and finding it like so inspiring because you're obviously aware of that too. When you get down to the science, like that's when you actually start to realize what's going on and that so much social constructs come in to what we're doing. Like I like Mitch, you were talking about the whole Neanderthal thing. Yeah, not to tangent too hard, but it, it reminds me a lot of this example. You know the book Superior? Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a about uh, race science, basically, and there's like an interesting discussion in there about how for a long time we looked at Neanderthals. Oh, there's these just these dumb sort of like human-like like creatures, they and, die, and yeah. would often connect them to like indigenous people. They're much cl- more similar to indigenous people, especially like Australian indigenous people. And now more and more we're seeing, oh, actually, lots of humans and homo sapiens have neanderthal dna predominantly european people yeah. in germany is where it mainly and now there's do. lots of stories that come out that are like actually wait neanderthals maybe were really smart maybe yeah, they used they tools. were the first to draw on cave walls yeah, interesting they were the f- ways yeah. so it's interesting how it's, those kind of stories yeah. end up changing as, and as science communicators we just read you, you we just read science all day and you it's i'm it's every day now i open like nature magazine and it's like neanderthals are a lot smarter than we thought and i just can't <laughs> help but you're like Wow, this is you know it's it's real. These social constructs are seeped into all of culture, and it seeps into science. And it's really important that people talk about it. And I just like appreciate you saying that because without it, like you see it get hijacked a lot. Well, yeah, I mean, you guys do a great job of that, and I think it's it's in part of uh, part of what you do. I think both implicitly and explicitly is portray this as a human endeavor, which is what it is. You know, and and not 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 to say. I mean, I do think that science 
in some ways is a is a special human endeavor, but mm-hmm. it uh, is. but it's a human it endeavor is. with all that that entails. For yeah, sure. yeah, I know that's so true. And like, it is special though. It is for sure, and, yeah. and we hope that over the time it can overcome these biases and prejudices. Um, I'm curious then, like with your writing what gave you the confidence like you mentioned how you know you didn't have the social capital at the beginning to start it what gave you the confidence to just talk so meaningfully about these things and go out there and be like i'm gonna sell a book um uh ignorance (laughs) partly at first (laughs) no because you don't you don't know better right because when when you've never had to structure uh, a ten thousand word piece of writing much less a hundred thousand word piece of writing i mean Mm -hmm. literally my idea was i'm gonna sit down and write a book like from point a to point b <laughs> you know like, <laughs> in I start one session yeah. yeah and now you know nothing could be further from the case now now mm-hmm. most of my time is spent sort of planning the structure <laughs> okay doing I, the writing this is a and question so, i have about the structure of writing like when would you rather talk about your first book or your second book which would be the most uh, like the best way to give advice to someone who would be wanting to write a book maybe your second one I think the second one. Okay. Um, I mean, I because I, I I think my you know my skills and my process improved um, between the first and second. So ones, maybe what are some of those takeaways? Because I like I can barely write a tweet. Like when I look at <laughs> when I, I that's love... not true. I mean, you're writing scripts. You know. <laughs> yes. Like, sorry, sorry. We are writing scripts, but I mean, you know, they they tap out at eight minutes, and then like I just I love reading books, and I just think because it's one of those things that I pick up and I read, and I think how did someone even have enough time on earth to ever write this like brilliant <laughs> book? So, like, how do you structure your day, and how do you? Like, how long is it before it's edited? Just like, can, even just like bite size info that you've told friends or something. I just want to know because I, I don't have any comprehension of how to write a book. That's really funny because it, it's the first, after I wrote a first book, one of the things I learned was that the initial questions people ask you have nothing to do with the book. They are, did you go on tour? How long did it take? And do you get royalties? <laughs> they have like nothing to do. That's, a, that's a capitalist person there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and also, you know, how do you do this? And so I, and I don't really know. It's a little bit of a blur. So I asked my, wife i'm like what did i this was with my first book when people ask me how did i like how did i and she said you went upstairs and came back down two years later (laughs) okay so so it is like a lot of time for me for me it definitely is i mean um yeah i mean for both books the the ideas i i didn't just sort of discreetly say i'm gonna write a book here's the topic it's like these ideas that are sort of percolating for a while Mm -hmm. and then as they build up um uh, you know, I start to realize there's more there. But once I actually decided, oh, this is a book, both times for the first year, I didn't even really write. My goal was to try to read 10 journal articles a day, every day for the year and create sort of like a map. So I would see, then you, you start to know what names are showing up, contacting some of those people. And you realize that every once in a while you find someone who actually enjoys talking to you and leading you to more stuff. And we'll take your calls whenever or emails. (laughs) And, And you get a really good sort of map of who's doing the more rigorous work, right? Like who's having bigger sample sizes and reporting all the measures of variance and effect sizes. Huh. So you, you sort of, over the course of doing that, it's sort of like this immersion. I mean, interestingly, nobody ever called me on this, but I first wrote an, a long article, like a 7,000-word article in Sports Illustrated about genetics before the book. And by the time I had the year of doing that sort of immersion, I actually cited my own magazine article as being mistaken in the book because <laughs> a year later, you just... And, and it's not that I blatantly said anything wrong I mean to pass through fact checking but there were scientists telling me things that were not supported by their data that they basically could not conclude from their data and it took me a long time to um, to realize that so I sort of do that immersion year which I find 
somewhat painful. I was going to say, do you enjoy that? No, but pain, <laughs> like, yeah, you probably learn a lot. But but we always say reading science, you get a science degree to learn a language. And that language totally. is science. Like mm-hmm. when I read science journal articles, I actually at certain points, I'm like, this is truly gibberish. Like to a, <laughs> to like a layman person, there's nothing in here that is meant to excite me in any way. You know what I mean? It's so yeah. alienating that I just, I can only imagine how that might be grueling to read that much science yeah. articles. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. But it's also interesting. So, I mean, I took statistics in college and grad school, but there's a, uh, a statistician that I basically, I guess I say, I'd say I keep him on retainer, but he would do it for free, but I don't want to take advantage of his time where I talked to him a lot of times during that year. I'll talk to him maybe four or five times a week. I'm like this study, wow, you know, wow. I really like this one. What do you think? He's kind of like, you like that study because you like it, but that method sucks. You know, and then wow, we sort of argue okay. and to help sift and, and, through the stuff that maybe isn't like the done. The p so value well. isn't that tight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's been and that's been such a great education, much more than just in many ways having taken a statistics course because it's like okay, here's something that interests me. This this paper I'm wrestling with, and I have specific questions about the way they're reporting this effect size or whatever, and let's go at it. And I think that's a very sticky way to learn. Kind that of. Yeah, like statistics is a really challenging part of a lot of people's science education, mm-hmm. and it's really dry, and that's really interesting. That's a, like a good way to even talk about curriculum. It's like, okay, wait, maybe stats is a course that we really focus and like differentiate people and figure out what it is that you're interested in, and let's learn about statistics through that perspective. Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people really challenge with stats because it is kind of like if you're not interested in the subject, you're kind of forced to try and like find yeah. this meaning. And, and it can be really, really challenging. Wow, Mitch, yeah. we need to get a stats person on <laughs> dial. That's so <laughs> smart. That's a, To have on retainer, that's such a funny way to be like, yeah, that's yeah. an amazing person to have in the background. So you have your year of, you know, just basking in that science glory. And then you yeah. sit down and you've structured something out and then you start to write. Yeah, sort of like that. And, and so that year, by the way, so I mean, I have a master's in environmental science, but when I you know, spend the year reading about genetics or whatever, I might not know how to run some of the machines in a genetics lab, well, like I would have in, at one point in, in a geology lab, but I've read 10 times as many papers yeah. in the field as I will have, so I actually have a better understanding. And right. then while I'm doing that, I sort of have this thing I call a master thought list where it's like, if there's something that interests me in a paper, a finding, whatever, I'll, I'll put it just on an electronic document and I'll put the citation there. And as things sort of start seeming so, uh, coalescing around a similar concept, I'll move those citations or quotes or whatever it was closer to each other on the document. And eventually mm. when there's enough, I put what I call a tag over it, which is like a label. And I type in a bunch of words that I think I would search if I were looking for that concept. And and as I get a bunch of different tags, I sort of consider those like storyboards. And then I just like move them in the order um, that they're actually, you know, that I initially think they're going to play out in, in the book. And so it's, it basically ends up being sort of like a storyboard of ideas and, and, and really the most influential, um, cause the structure is really tough for me because both of the books sort of, their core is orbiting on this question, you know, nature versus nurture in, in mm-hmm. athleticism, uh, how broad or how specialized to be. And y- you can't give perfect answers to these yeah. questions. They're very <laughs> context dependent, but I want someone to feel like it's not just a bunch of magazine articles stapled together. Like they're having an escalating sense of engagement with that question and their, their discussions thenceforth about it will be more interesting or productive. And what influenced me the most. With the idea of say your second book range, why? Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? 
United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Generalist mm-hmm. triumph in a specialized world. When, when did that theme sort of come together? It, the, the first seed was actually off the back of my first book from the sports scene. I got invited to debate Malcolm Gladwell at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Uh, kinda, nervous, nervous, yeah, shaking <laughs> in my boots. Yeah, yeah it's because well, you, yeah. you called it, him out a little bit in the first one. Called him out's a strong word, but you you addressed the ten thousand yeah. hour rule, right? In your most yeah. recent book, yeah. I definitely named him though. I definitely critiqued him. Um, yeah. and and so I got invited to debate him at this this conference. It's sort of like a job fair for the NBA, but anyway. Um, <laughs> And, and so our debates on, on YouTube and I knew, you know, he's clever. I didn't want to get embarrassed in public. I'd never met him before. Oh my God. And you'd never met him. No, never talked to him. Nothing. And so. Oh my God. I was so scared. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I was. And, <laughs> and so I, you know, and so I read some of the stuff he was writing to try to anticipate what he would argue. And I know, well, okay, well, he's got to argue for the importance of starting like as early as you possibly can in so-called deliberate practice right mm-hmm. like really technical training not playing around and so when we came to the debate i had perused because we were we were supposed to talk specifically about athletic development even though it went in all these directions but um and so i had perused like all of the literature i could find about this and was surprised to see that in most cases um, the athletes who went on to become elite did not specialize earlier than their peers they actually went through what scientists call a sampling period where they try this wide variety of physical activities they gain a breadth of general skills uh, they learn about their interests and abilities and they actually systematically delay specializing in one thing until later than peers who plateau at lower levels Hmm. and so i i i shared that data in the debate and he basically went yeah that that actually doesn't comport with my hypothesis. Wow. <laughs> you stumped when, Malcolm <laughs> So, So when Gun we were shots. going off the stage, he's like, you know, you got me. We called it the Roger versus Tiger thing. Because I said, we all tell the Tiger Woods story of how he started at like seven months old. But, mm-hmm. but golf turns out to be like a uniquely horrible model of almost everything else that humans want to learn. It's like, okay, cool. Because of... I truly hate golf. <laughs> it's For not a, a, variety it's of not a commentary about golf being bad as golf. It's bad to extrapolate it. To oh, dang it. Okay, fine. I was like, it's so bad for the um, environment. And I'm just like, so elitist. Anyways, okay, moving on. <laughs> and so on the other end of the spectrum was like Roger Federer, who did a ton of different sports and, um, you know, like did like a dozen different sports as a kid and was several years behind some of his peers in focusing. And that's actually the norm. But we only, huh. and both those guys are equally famous as adults, but we only hear one, the, we only hear the exception yeah. story as if it's the rule. And so he was like, gosh, you got me on that. You should kind of write about that. And he, I sort of became running buddies. We're both, we were both competitive runners and would talk about on our own time. Um, do you live in that? The, where do you live? Like, well, like, I was in New York at the time. Okay. I was like, where does one run with Malcolm? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, 
And so that sort of became the seed from this. But I had no intention of writing another book. Then I got involved with this foundation, the Pat Tillman Foundation, which is another sports link here. It's, it's, it's named and endowed in the name of a, an NFL player who left mid-career to join the army because he felt it was not good that only poor people were going to Afghanistan. Mm. Um, and he was killed there. <gasps> and this foundation gives grants to, it's like hyper-competitive for career changes and, and education to veterans and military spouses. And, and I got sort of involved with this foundation and started realizing that these, some of these incredible people would be like hiding their very unusual experiences because in their resume they would look sort of kind of maybe a little bit scattered wow and, yeah and then then you'd get to know them and their peers and you'd realize oh okay this person went to high school or college and they didn't feel fulfilled in whatever job they had so they joined the military and then they end up you know administering medical care to people in some remote village in another country and they learn about bureaucratic dysfunctions they didn't know about and they come back and they want to do something different or start something. And basically, so their resume will look scattered, but really it's that they have been pivoting in response to their learned, to their lived experience, which is exactly Hmm. how I would want someone to behave instead of just forging ahead, doing the first thing they started on. And, and it struck me that they viewed the, what I, what I and the rest of the selection committee viewed as strengths, they often viewed as weaknesses and downplayed. And it just brought this idea back to my head of like, maybe this issue of obsession with head starts is something I should think about writing up beyond sports and sports is just the analogy. And so that, wow. that was when I decided, okay, that I'm going to look into this. I love that. It, it remind, I have like a note written from your book when I was reading my, one of my favorite parts is when you talk about don't plan and implement, test and learn. And it's, it's not yeah. who do I want to become, but which among my various possible selves should I start to explore now? And obviously yeah. you kind of bolster that idea with the fact that you don't have to be starting when you're two years old to become good at something. In fact, sometimes exploring your interest and finding that genuine interest and that can change from time to time. I think it's a nice message for everyone to hear because it, you can get really self-conscious when you, you know, every decade you turn a decade older and you go, oh my gosh, like have I run out of time? Is it too late to start something new? But it's a nice idea to remember that you're still always constantly changing and evolving. Yeah. Except for you guys. I mean, I know that from the time you were six, you wanted to be doing whiteboard animations. Uh, <laughs> on YouTube, videos. a platform we predicted <laughs> decades <Yeah>. ahead. <laughs> but it's something that I think like this message is so intriguing. It does relate to science. It's kind of what we were talking about earlier with like the biases that come in science is because a lot of people are streamlined into it. One thing that has always frustrated me is that I love visual art and I love science and in high school they like didn't go together and then I had to go to a specific university that allowed you to study both like you couldn't just go and study visual art and science at most universities and even then I had to take an extra semester for the actual courses to make sense and even out like the whole education system Mm -hmm. isn't built around choosing yeah and it's based on like putting people into brackets and saying okay you like science okay well then you better stick with science but we're like no you need to be creative you need to think outside the box like all of these things need to work together and like obviously you focus on sports as you said but i was like this is such an amazing analogy for so many aspects and so many different types of things like it is so meaningful Oh my gosh. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's the, the fact that like we make that separation, right? Like we break the world down into disciplines to make it comprehensible. Not that's a necessary evil. The world itself is not like the problems we face aren't broken down that way. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's just it, it, it's frustrating because you know it some is. of the research. Like I only use sports in the in the introduction of the book and then jump off from there. But like one of the early stats I said is no, Nobel laureate scientists are twenty two times more likely than typical scientists to have a serious aesthetic hobby outside of their work yeah, yeah. I love that. got that written and, down too so it's <laughs> sort of like it, it, it's almost like I, I read a whole bunch of no but i only quoted from a few of them at the very end but 
I read a whole bunch of Nobel acceptance speeches, both out of interest and just while I was doing research. And something that struck me was almost every year, um, some scientist in their acceptance speech would say something like, well, of course, I couldn't do the work I did now because I didn't really know what I was looking for. And I was just kind of curious about this thing and messing around. And that's what huh. led to the breakthrough. And I'm like, maybe we should take that as a signal yeah. that we are <laughs> tracking people a little too narrowly that all that every year someone who's accepting a Nobel Prize is like, gosh, well, I wouldn't be able to do it now. You know, and it goes, some, this is like, a, I don't know why my brain's going here. It goes the other way, too. I think it's maybe just because right now we're like literally in Hollywood. But it's like, it's the same thing with Hollywood. Like sometimes I'm like, OK, climate change is the biggest issue of our time. We need to make content, movies, media about this. And like every year, like a lot of celebrities go up and they'll like say like when they win awards, oh, I'll buy PS, I'm interested in climate change. But it's like we need scientists in the arts in order to <laughs> yeah. like create actual totally. movies so they can go up and accept their award and say, I'm glad I made this movie that is bringing awareness. And mm-hmm. it's like it's interesting because I always think I focus so much on like science and like this idea. But it's like, oh, the arts also need science as well. Mm-hmm. I know I keep hijacking what you're saying to try and talk about <laughs> science and art. but <laughs> No, 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 totally. I mean, uh, obviously what you're doing, I mean, you're you're combining art and science constantly, right? That's like the lifeblood of what you do and what drew me to your videos in the first place. That's um, true. So yeah. Greg, you got I you. Think, yeah, yeah, it is. It is bizarre because even the fact that we took kind of more general biological science degrees as opposed to specializing, neither Greg or I specialized. Like we, I stepped out of biomed science and just went more general because I was like, I want to be able to take more interesting, not more interesting, but like a variety of classes ended up for us at the time, it was kind of like, okay, what's your career going to be? But now it's like, now we have an interest in, we make videos about a broad variety of science topics and it's kind of worked out in that way. Yeah, we were panicked about our degrees. We're like, it's not <laughs> leading to anything. It's like, if only your book existed then, I would have been like, read range. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I hear you. I mean, when, when I got off the science track, you know, it was partly because I decided I really more urgently wanted to write about sudden cardiac death in athletes, but also sort of uh, my research was getting so narrowly focused. I'm asking myself, am I the kind of type, type of person who wants to spend my whole life learning one or two things new to the world that may be so esoteric that even my peers don't care about it? Because <laughs> yeah. really? I was being encouraged to pick off a slice of something that nobody else had studied, yes. possibly because nobody else was interested. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that literally is science. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Or, or am I the type of person who wants to spend shorter spans of time learning things new to me and synthesizing them and sharing them and, and those sorts of things? So I would guess that that you know, we all have something in common in that sense. Okay. So I'm curious, like, so you have your whole writing process. It takes years to write a book. Your first book was a New York Times bestseller. Did you have any anticipation of what like that experience would be like? Uh, no, because I thought that, um, at that point I thought like, okay, books are what you do as a passion project, unless you're like a celebrity or politician, in which case, you know, you're going to sell a bunch of books, but also because so I started having some success at, at Sports Illustrated, and when I would write science articles there, a lot of times my bosses would love them, but they also wanted them to be sort of sparing because, you know, we'd get people writing in. I remember one guy would always write in um, and say, and these were like, you know, actual letters that would come in that uh, he'd say, I- I'm not subscribing to the New England Journal of Medicine here. And I'm like, boy, you have not read the New England Journal of Medicine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but, you know, they, they it was... People weren't wanting was that. Diff- they weren't yeah. wanting that? 
Well, actually, they often did well, but and I think we always overreacted to like the small number. Of, look, mm. it, it, if you if you wrote an article about a sport that wasn't the NFL, you'd get a bunch of letters that were like, "I didn't just subscribe to this to <laughs> not read about it." So, I mean, it was it's the original you know. YouTube comments. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it's basically like a comment board, right? Yeah, like, and don't focus and on a, the negative ones. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So if you judge by that, but but so I did have the impression that okay, these are of interest to me, to some other set of people, but not. Um, you know, not with too much frequency. And so I thought it was sort of my opportunity to explore my own interest, but it would be a niche audience. And so when it sort of took off, because uh, I remember thinking like, okay, X million people read an SI article with some order of magnitude lower will, at best case, mm-hmm. read my book. So I'll get commensurate mail to that. And that turned out not to be the case. Like I'm still getting mail most days about it. I think like the way people who spend their 10 or $20 and their time to engage with a book is j- just must be like a much... And and I guess I know this as a reader too. It's like a much more intimate experience yes. than of the magazine yes. articles I engage with. That's so interesting. So once you okay, so it kind of explodes. What I'm so curious about is, especially for your second book, when was there a lot of pressure for you then? Because obviously now there's expectations on what it means to write a book, not only the process of it, but like how successful that will or book will be. Or how much time and did how, you have? Yeah, like for us, you know, we make a podcast, we make YouTube videos, things that are kind of instantly gratifying because we put them out relatively soon after. And so I'm just wondering what that feeling was like when you start your second book. Is there a lot of intense feelings and nervousness and pressure on you? Yeah, I, I felt a lot of pressure for sure. I mean, partly... I guess I, I try not to always have to compete directly with my prior self if I can help it. So as soon as I finished my first book, it was kind of weird because I, I, not expecting it to be successful, I left. I was leaving Sports Illustrated and two weeks later after it came out, starting at ProPublica, where they don't care about sports <laughs> stuff. That I, I mean, some of them are interested in sports, but you can't be like a full-time sports writer at ProPublica. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if people know ProPublica, but it's all investigative stuff in, in the public interest, basically. And... Um, so all of a sudden this, I'm, I'm, my sort of sports public image or whatever is taking off in one direction. Meanwhile, I'm going to do drug cartels and healthcare and hmm. stuff like that and bad science and, and all these things. And so I kind of like split my, my professional identity in two and it was sort of huh. weird to be that way, but it was also nice to be at ProPublica for a while where I could just do something totally different that I thought was really worthwhile. Hashtag um, range. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and build different skills. Um, and because I do think writers tend to, you know, for obvious reasons, because sometimes jobs are hard to come by now, but instead of diversifying their skills can kind of stick somewhere where they're just comfortable. Um, and so I think that was a nice break to have where I, I got to not feel like I was competing with my sports self because I wasn't doing that anymore. And and after a period of recovery, because after the first book, I was like, never doing that again. <laughs> yeah, you said that. You're like, I never thought I'd write a book again. And I was like, is yeah. that why? Just the sheer amount of time? And I just found that the... the the structuring was, it just, you know, tasked my working memory, I guess. And, and just eats up your whole, like, because you're on your own clock. And, and it's hard to say, oh, my deadline is two years from now. I'm going to pace this project to exactly turn it in on this day two years <laughs> yeah. from now, right? <laughs> and you don't have to necessarily meet the deadline, but then it can just drag on and on and on. And so I just felt like I always should be reading something or working on something. And if I wasn't, you know, and I'd go oh, down these rabbit holes of curiosity you... and like, come up and realize it was not for anything I was going to write about. So it just really swallows my life. And yeah. I was ready to take a break from that and just have like go into an office and then go home. Yes. Okay. Um, and so it took a while to sort of recover. And when I did decide to do another one, I definitely felt a lot of pressure because this time um, 
the publisher made a much, much larger investment in me because of the first time. Right. And so I felt that pressure. Um, I, I switched agents because my, you know, previously I think, um, well, there were a number of people around me who thought I'd be an idiot to let it be another five years to have a book out. And it's been six. And I think it, that was fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. People start, they start showing up and they start <laughs> having opinions about getting things out. And you're like, you're like wait a second. You're making money off of this. This is why you want us to do our thing fast. Anyways. I think I started to realize why like bands, breakout bands often make bad second albums because it's like they took this time to figure out what they were doing and then all of a sudden someone decides they can do it again in six months. Right. Right. They haven't changed in that way. But so, no, I did feel a lot of pressure. One, because the project was so different. Um, and so I, th- I basically thought the project had a low floor and a high ceiling. Like it but could it had be a Malcolm a- Gladwell seal of approval. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, I, I thought I, I loved his blurb. I, w- I was, since again, this time I didn't really critique him by name, but I'm clearly <laughs> criticizing some of his stuff again. And so I was sheepish now that I you know, know him about asking for a blurb, but my publisher was like, you must. So I sent it to him and the blurb he gave was, I think it was, uh, for reasons I can't understand, David Epstein makes me enjoy the experience of being told everything I think about something is wrong. And I was like, <laughs> so you good. know what? That's about the best I could have asked. That's for, an right? incredible blurb from yeah. Yeah. Really Um But yeah, no, I was, I was definitely nervous. I was definitely nervous because it was just such a different project for me. And, and really, I mean, when I'm in it, I don't, once I sort of turn in a manuscript and it's always too long and I have to cut it down. I, you know, learned that my books get published in multiples of 16 pieces of paper. So it has to fit that. <laughs> um, and, but for the two years where I'm just exploring, I don't really know what I think and I'm not sure what I'm going to find because a lot of my intuition, like when I write the book proposal, turns out to be wrong. So a lot of things I think I'm going to write about <laughs> turn out not to be the case. Um, and I'm just thinking with my fingers and trying to arrange things. And then you surface two years later and finally someone's going to look at it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, am I, in the right orbit or not because <laughs> yeah, you really don't know wow. and so that's kind of nerve-wracking so obviously the, the most the most like the happiest moment of the whole process to me was not the the best seller list or anything at least for the second book it was you know when i surfaced two years later and and gave it to the editor who had who had put this investment in me and then you wait two weeks to see the email uh from her and is it like you is know it, they like it i think you've got a good it. start <laughs> yeah. or is it like this this is excellent. So that the, ha- the happiest moment was her first response when she really she, and by the way she had been uh, she had been on track to be an engineer and became a look oh, editor. Wow. So also another person after. after and so so her response was this is excellent. Like this is like you yeah didn't have she that much she was very enthusiastic and she's like she's she's a pretty staid person normally. Yes, so I yeah. felt really so that that was sort of the happiest one because it, it's literally I'm so inside of the own project that I've lost perspective on if I've sort of hit it or totally missed it Mm -hmm. um so that was a nerve-wracking little time well congratulations then yeah so i I I want to ask on on sort of like behalf of our audience and people who might be curious not only just about writing but science communication like is there advice that you feel that you can impart on that through your experience of writing your first book and your second book what are kind of those main takeaways if you were i mean i don't know are you going to write a third book and if you were what would be those biggest pieces of advice you could give to yourself and others yeah, so from from the standpoint of, um, I, I think again the the big difference between something like a book or that's that's longer form is that structure becomes more of a challenge, um, and if you want it to seem coherent, not just like a bunch of shorter shorter pieces stapled together. And the biggest lesson I ever took from that actually was from an experience. This is very range like, I guess, um, of film editing, where a friend of mine was doing a documentary 
um, about renewable energy, actually, and he had carpal tunnel syndrome. So I, he had to talk me through doing the editing. So I was like the motor skills and he was the brains. But through that, I got this experience of how film editing sort of worked, where it was he had all this material and then he wanted me to cut it into these chunks of scenes, basically, and all the stuff between those hits the cutting room floor. And then you just arrange the chunks so one out point or fade out or commercial break or whatever it is leads to the next in point. And that's exactly how I think of um, the writing where I use hmm. section breaks between, you know, like double spaces between sections of text or yep. chapter breaks, just like as if I were, you know, storyboarding a film. So structurally, that's like my, my best tip from the science um, sort of getting it right concept. I think this having these finding what, what I call the, the sort of rabbis, like these scientists or statisticians who you find actually like engaging with you and you can go to constantly to do what I call sanity checks. Basically, am, am I thinking about this right? Am I reading this right? Do I just want this to be true? Um, that is really invaluable. Like th the main, exactly, you know, one of the things that we learned with some formal science education, which is you need to spend some time trying to falsify your priors, not just trying to confirm mm. what you came in with. Yeah. And for me, some of the most interesting stuff I've ended up writing about, right? My book proposal was going to be pro 10,000 hours rule, right? But I decided <laughs> to take the approach of uh, looking to falsify some of my intuition. And that turned into one of the most interesting things in the book. And that yeah. happened again with my second book with the research, psychological research on grit, which I found really interesting. And then when I delved more into it, um, it wasn't exactly as it, hit it, as it had been portrayed in some other areas and turned into one of the most interesting things in the book. But I think taking that approach of spending some time trying to you know shoot holes in your own your own thinking your own stories wow that is great advice yeah it's a hard process to go through right it's so much easier to just be like and i'm right and all my ideas are the best ones to go with and well i know an interesting <laughs> anecdote that actually goes back to those original videos that we did uh based on a lot of the research from your book was we actually those videos that we made for asap science uh, there's this thing in Toronto called the CBC. It's our publicly broadcasted um, station. And they were sort of like uh, working with us and sort of like doing this Olympics coverage. And sometimes they would be like, okay, wait, the end of this video, you know, it seems sort of like subtle and like nuanced and you don't ever really answer the question. Like maybe you could answer the question. And we're like, no, like, cause when you actually like, look at the research, change the answer. Yeah, it was really <laughs> yeah. funny. And like, they didn't understand. Eventually we just fought for it. And we were like, we, at the time we're like, as you would as you said earlier, young and ignorant. And we were just like, no, CBC, who the heck even are you? It's like, like this huge company. And we were like working in our bedrooms. Uh, but yeah, it was funny because like people, yeah, like that is a challenge with science. And it's an important thing to always be thinking about. Like you can't, everything that you sometimes want to say, when you start to really get into it, you learn all these other things. And that can lead you to sometimes the most interesting research, as you've just stated. Yeah. And like I said, I don't think it's just an issue of responsibility. It is really where I've found some of the yeah. most interesting stuff. And it also makes it when it comes out, if if a book or or anything you do reaches a really wide audience, um, if there are holes to be poked, you're probably going to hear about them. Yeah. Be better if you learn about them before you put it out there. Yeah, <laughs> and then, then you have a chance to find interesting things and actually, yeah. you know, and actually write about them. Okay, we're running out of time, so let's talk about this yeah, science okay. curiosity thing. Okay, yeah, before we go and before we wrap up, there's a couple of things we'll touch on from Range that we loved. And you can let us know if I, I know you haven't like memorized your book, but I'm sure you like know about it. There I can't was you one memorized my book. <laughs> <laughs> um, in particular, we, we love this idea of like science curiosity versus science knowledge. 
Oh, yeah. That was such interesting research. So this is, is research partly led by Dan Cahan, where he was looking at um, what are the habits of mind um, of people who uh, you know, are more like, well, a, n- a number of things are, are more likely to make better predictions and, and more likely to come to true conclusions um, about science, are more likely to be able to interpret statistics correctly, even if they go against uh, you know, their intuition and their beliefs. And, and so this whole suite of characteristics of people who um, evaluate the world more objectively, let's say, and mm-hmm. fairly. And interestingly, what he found was that science knowledge itself did not predict things like people's ability to interpret statistics that didn't agree with, with their prior notions. Uh, in fact, for many people, it actually made them even even worse at it because they could sort of cherry pick and find any, they had this right. expansive knowledge and could find anything to, to satisfy any story. But what did was uh, um, a trait that he called science curiosity. And essentially the way this was measured was really cleverly. They would bring people in and the parts of the experiment, uh, people would think that like parts of the experiment that was just them waiting around actually, you know, that actually was the experiment in many cases. And they would be exposed to scientific information in these sort of um, like, things that looked like market research surveys. And then they would have opportunities to to just sit around on a computer and surf the web or look for more follow-up information. And the people specifically, who not only looked for more information about things they had been exposed to, but specifically followed up on the science content to learn more and ask questions and kept looking into it, were the ones who ended up um, being more able to kind of objectively evaluate evidence in the world. And this was independent of how much they knew about science coming in. It was more based on how curious they were and, and how voracious they were in following up scientific information that they found. So I love that. Yeah, because Greg and I often, I mean, not often, but more more recently, we started our channel with this idea of, you know, you want to make make people curious about science, but ultimately you teach them science. But over the years, we've sort of realized just knowing science doesn't necessarily make you a better person, doesn't necessarily make the world a better place. It's kind of what you do with it. And so this idea of being a curious person who's willing to hear ideas that might contradict some of your previous beliefs is really the ultimate, not ultimate, but you know what I mean? Science curiosity is like a beautiful trait to have. And a lot of people assume that people who are extremely knowledgeable about science are innately like, yeah, like, or or like open-minded or like interested in like new ways of like looking at the world. But then it's funny because you, you know, yeah, you meet them and then, or people assume that about our audience and we're like, it sometimes feels like that's not the way. It feels like people are very stuck in their ways because you're right. That's so interesting to think with a large breadth of science knowledge, you can then justify Mm -hmm. everything with like really impressive stats that everyone on the street goes, oh, you're so smart. Like, Mm -hmm. and (laughs) yeah, it's just like very meaningful uh, for us specifically. And I like, obviously hopefully. Was there, I can't recall right now from the book, like, was there ever a discussion around how can you inspire science curiosity into people? Like, instead of just giving them knowledge, how do do we save and change the world? (laughs) No, I mean, that's like the next level of research, right? Mm -hmm. Is this something, is this something you can build? And if so, how do you do it? And and I I actually think that's a pretty urgent thing to to figure out. I mean, my assumption is that you can, my assumption is that like all things, um, right, the so-called like first law of behavioral genetics is that every um every kind of personality trait has some inherited component but often sometimes that's very small and sometimes it's moderate and there's always other aspects to it um and so i i think 
definitely it can probably be built. And I think it's a really urgent thing because probably the paper of Cahans that I found the most interesting was one, and this one was replicated by a separate group in the UK where people were given statistics. Um, and in some cases, these statistics looked like they were they were just faked uh, as if they were a clinical trial for some skin cream to cure a rash. And in other cases, the same statistics were made to look like they either said um, gun control increases or decreases mm-hmm. uh, homicides. And then in the UK, it was skin cream versus immigration increases or decreases uh, crime. And one of the craziest things was these people would also take a numeracy test, you know, how, how numerate they were essentially. And it goes on a scale from like one to nine. And as people got more num- people who were very politically polarized on those issues, as they became more numerate, they became more likely to misinterpret the statistics when they went against their prior beliefs. Hmm. Wow. Unless, unless, so, so which is bad. That's like a who built these you right. know, broke stupid brains kind of thing. Where you're <laughs> yeah. like, that's not good. You say, oh, well, people being more, until the top of the numeracy scale, where then it would go mm. back up. But most of the people are in the middle. Right. And so getting, being moderately numerate, you were actually more likely to fall into your, your kind of prior intuition, except for the people who are high in science curiosity, in which case, they did not fall into that cognitive bias of misinterpreting statistics, even if it went against their, um, you know, their, their political beliefs, basically. And, and boy, I have a hard time thinking of, of a kind of habits of mind that feel more important than that right now. Yeah. Yes. No, that mm-hmm. is so it's true. It's like really, really relevant to now. Um, I just have one last question. I know you kind of mentioned there were, what, were there some things that you wish were in the book that didn't make it into the book or that you found out after? Like what, what has been the result of making this book and your further research? Yeah, I mean, a, a bunch of things. I had to cut 30,000 words, but... Oh, but, wow. Yeah, yeah. That's, but there was... Well, I'm adding a couple back so for an afterward. But, yeah. um, but there was one study that came out like right after the, the deadline passed um, on something called interleaving. And, and I would have loved to, to include it, even though I already wrote about interleaving. So basically, I'll just explain the study and in the yeah. context of that, it'll make sense. Where seventh grade math classrooms, 54 different classrooms, so a lot of different students, were randomly assigned to two types of math learning. Some classrooms got what's called blocked practice, which is like you give the students problem type A, 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 B, 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 and so on. The other groups, and, and in that condition, the kids, they, they make fast progress, uh, they rate their learning highly. They rate their teacher highly. Everyone's happy. The other classrooms were randomized to what's called interleaved practice, where it's as if you took all the problem types and threw them in a hat and drew them out at random. So A, C, D, B, you know, all over the place. In that case, this, the initial progress is slow. Students are frustrated. They rate their own learning more poorly. They rate their teachers more poorly. Hmm. But instead of learning how to execute procedures over and over, they're learning how to match a type of strategy uh, to a problem. And when the test came around, the interleaved group blew the block practice group away. The largest wow. effect size I've ever seen in a randomized education, controlled education mm. trial, wow. 0.83 standard deviations. So that's like taking the 50th percentile of the curve and shifting it over to the 80th percentile. Wow. So having studied the same stuff, but in a, different, in a different order, order that just made it slower and more frustrating. Um, and that, that to me was sort of the, the sub-theme, one of the sub-themes of the book was sometimes the things that can cause the most rapid progress or give you a head start can actually undermine your long-term development, whether that's your hmm. career or study choice or the way you, f- you fundamentally learn new material. And I just thought that was such a well-done study wow. that, you know, I sort of... Um, was annoyed that it came out like right <laughs> that's so <laughs> interesting. I so I was a science teacher and like it's so in line with like everything. I mean, it was this was like seven years ago, but that was 
the biggest frustration as teachers is that you work in this curriculum in this institution that so is leaning towards the first part of that. It's just like, get these kids to do well so the parents are happy, so that the stats come in that show that the school are good. And it's just like there is that instinct that all teachers talk about where they're like, wait, no. Like they spend all their time trying to figure out how they become good teachers while simultaneously trying to fit into this weird curriculum that's so based the other way. And it's like, that's such a good study to show. Like the people, essentially the administrators who build curriculums to be like, it has to be different. <laughs> I mean, that that's a huge problem. And I don't I'd like, I don't know if we're, we're out of time, but that you just reminded me of what I thought was, to me was the most surprising study in, in the whole book. Do I have a minute or should I just yeah, no, yeah, yeah, go, yeah, off, yeah. go off, go off, okay. go off. <laughs> Which was this one done at the U.S. Air Force Academy where um, that was trying to examine the impact of math teachers. And basically the Air Force Academy is an incredible place to do this experiment because they get a thousand students in every year. And those students all have to take a sequence of at least three math courses. And they all have the same exact test, um, the same curriculum. They are randomized to teachers for calculus one, re-randomized for calculus two, and then mm. re-randomized for a third course. So thousands of students and a hundred teachers, like 10,000 students that's and hundred teachers. That's abstract. <laughs> yeah. So they're, they're followed over a decade. And the finding was the teachers whose students did, and, and the, the characteristics that the students came in with because they're randomized were spread evenly across courses. And the teachers who are the best at getting the kids to do well on in on the calculus one exam in their own class, those students then went on to underperform in the follow-on courses and the reverse. The teachers whose students did worse in their own calculus one class then went on to the next courses and did better. So huh. the students who do well in calculus one, they rate their teacher highly, they rate their own learning highly, and then they underperform in subsequent courses. And what the scientists concluded was that the way to get the students uh, to do really well in your own calculus one class was to teach them so-called using procedures knowledge, which is essentially like teaching at the test, right? You teach them all the tricks yeah. to get the stuff right, but they don't have this broader conceptual knowledge that then helps them do well in the subsequent courses. And so you could undermine their math progression um, by taking the most expedient way of getting them to do well on the test in the first course. And I thought that was kind of an amazing study. Wow. I mean, it, yeah, it's so interesting to think how mm -hmm. so often struggling it can lead to like your greatest results, right? Like having to struggle through something like teaches you so much that actually stays with you because emotionally it's frustrating. So your brain probably actually categorizes it as like something to remember because it was so hard. <laughs> and it's such a separate podcast, but it's just like, this is an education like based issue, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's like so often teachers, yeah, who are, are worried about the way that they're being judged by like curriculum mm -hmm. and by parents. And it's like, this is really important information for everyone to understand to actually like give more patience to teachers and to students and maybe to allow there to be more creativity mm -hmm. in the classroom. Uh, well, David, oh, thank, thank you. you so much for joining us on this podcast. Um, where can people who are listening follow you and find you? Um, I'm, I'm at David Epstein on Twitter um, and I have davidepstein.com and I'm going to, I'm going to start a newsletter that I have a sign up on davidepstein.com to pack in some of that stuff that I had to cut out. So, cool. and, the, and the studies that were published too recently for the book. That's yes, amazing. And absolutely. I, I can endorse both books. Love them both. If you haven't read them, they were two of my favorite books I read. You're an amazing science communicator and a, a great Thank writer. Um, and we really, really appreciate you being here. Uh, it's a pleasure. As I said, I'm a longtime fan, and, and this was a lot of fun also. Sweet. Thank you. All right, well, thank you, everyone, for listening. If you want to uh, talk to us, you can use the hashtag Side Note Podcast. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. Peace. 
Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.